We're going to take a look at a report from New Frontier Data on cannabis finance and investment, looking at SPACs, uh, the number of public cannabis companies that kind of came in using a specialty purpose acquisition company, um, as well as industry highlights. So what was the capital raises and the mergers and acquisition activity, uh, as well as debt raises. So people are using debt instead of equity, kind of what that means, all of that coming up. It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. All right, let's take a look at the uh, investment here in um, the cannabis space. Uh, the Real Estate Investment Trust, Innovative Industrial Properties has 77% institutional ownership. So uh, it's easier for uh, you know, traditional investors in banking to look at a REIT, a real estate investment trust and say, yep, I understand commercial real estate. And so we're going to get into cannabis that way. It doesn't touch the flower, which is property. That's the best way to go. So, um, you know, go like Hexo only has 17%. Um, AR Wellness, they just got bought by uh, Pfizer. Shit. So um, Planet 13 has 0%. Uh, institutional ownership. So uh, not a wide variety here. So, so see some people on the back burner, but I think a lot of that also has to do with them wanting exclusivity. They're not going to just dump like 5%, you know, buy 5% of, um, you know, a stock like BlackRock owns 5% of like every publicly traded company out there. It's not going to be the same thing with cannabis. I think they're going to want to come in and grab um, a whole company. And that's what you're seeing, uh, you know, with Constellation Brands going up and spending $4 billion on canopy growth. That's what they want is like an exclusive partner. They're not interested in just kind of investing for money. They want, they want to own a company. They want market share. They want domination. For those that can't get institutional capital, they're just going to go straight to the public markets and file a SPAC. Um, a pub, uh, filing an IPO is it's expensive. It's going to cost you... Um, probably like at least $4 million just to file the IPO. Uh, you can do a reverse takeover and spend about $800,000 and buy a shell company and then just change your name. Uh, or you can, you know, hop in the way, way back machine and pretend it's the eighties and have a specialty purpose acquisition corp. It's really, really, um, I don't want to say easy. It's a simplified process similar to the 80s of going public. It's very limited in what you need to provide. And so if an existing company that's already public wants to bring you into their organization and spin you off later, that's essentially what a SPAC is. And there's 176 uh, cannabis SPACs that are listed on the U.S. OTC markets. There's 32 on NASDAQ, five on the New York Stock Exchange. So uh, I've definitely seen a lot. I've, I've interviewed several for Seeking Alpha, a financial media company where I interview publicly traded CEOs, and many, many of them are SPACs. And I asked them, why did you file a SPAC over RTO, IPO, or otherwise? And basically, it's because it's easy and cheap. The very first one was a MTech. Uh, they acquired the acquisition of MJ Freeway. Freaking disaster. That was 2018. And then the first plant-touching SPAC was Canaccord Genuity. Uh, and Columbia Care, that was in November 2018. So we saw many other deals like Jay-Z's, Canvas Company, Monogram in 2020. 
So the pandemic kind of made cannabis an essential business. They saw revenues 30% above the previous predicted levels. Um, and just a lot of people are going up. And as people are going back to normal, we're seeing some prices going down. I also think the decrease in wholesale and retail pricing and you know the amount people are purchasing has a lot to do with uh, inflation. I think people are really cutting back. You can see that on TV too. If you look at automotive commercials, 72 months, 0% and 90 days, no payments is a massive indicator to me that we have reached an economic top. Yes, rates are going up for rental housing and, and the housing market and all of this crazy bubble territory keeps going up, making everyone think that the economy is uh, in a um, upward trajectory position, but it's just squeezing out that last little bit and maybe that'll last for two more years. But um, it's obvious to me that we've reached a peak and things are coming down. Uh, we've reached a lot of peak stuff. Um, and, and cannabis, I think, has, has reached a peak of same-store sales until we can have more innovative products like ready-to-go beverages. And that's not going to happen until federal legalization because just like Coke or Pepsi, you need regional bottling facilities to make that actually uh, advantageous to the investor. It's way too expensive to do otherwise. When you look at um, M&As, a lot of capitulation. We've been saying that on this podcast for four years now, and, and we're starting to see that now companies want to get out of the industry. Um, and MSOs, nothing new, right? These multi-state operators going in, buying companies uh, and creating this, um, this frenzy with crazy valuations. Um, you know, $350 million series D round in October, the largest year to date um, from Dutchy just kind of crazy raising money um, with wild valuations. We saw a massive swing in the public markets from November to January after the election and saw um, inflows of around 4.2 billion, uh, which was a lot. So, and then a lot of that came out, we saw like a 60% retracement. Everybody just left and realized that this is more momentum uh, stock, Momo stocks than, than real kind of, um, uh, fundamental or, or even technical opportunities. So pretty much a, a non-mover. Cannabis companies just don't move very much at all. Um, cannabis industry capital raise, you know, Jane Technology, they got $100 million. Uh, somehow people gave MedMen more money, um, which is crazy. But it's not surprising that the frenzy is coming in. People have seen the speculation in Canada. They want some of that action in the U.S. And so they're willing to do crazy stuff. There's um, People are going after debt rounds instead of just equity. And so we're seeing um, all, it's still around between um, two-thirds. It was over 80% in 2018, and now it's only 60%. So you're seeing a lot more debt. And what does that mean? It means that investors are feeling more confident in accepting uh, debt rather than an equity play. So that's um, either they're comfortable or they're not doing their due diligence or there's FOMO, one of those one of those things, but they're more willing to invest. And I think ultimately that's kind of the point um, why they're, they're taking the debt is, um, I'd like to think it's because that they believe in these companies, but just so many investors I've seen don't do their due diligence. They're probably just doing taking whatever they're willing, they're going to take whatever they can get. I think a lot of them are just going to take whatever they can get. 
Uh, and it's not really a matter of whether they believe in the company or not, it's just FOMO. So again, debt was only about 18% of capital raises in 2018 and then rose to 40% this year. It's more than doubled the average of 47 million per deal up from 20 million in 2018. So it's, it's a good sign, traditionally speaking. Looking at average deal size, you know, there's equity and debt and the average raise total. So 2021 um, looks like uh, some debt deals with coupons below 10%. That's pretty good. Green Thumb Industries secured a three-year loan at 71%. Um, True Leave, $350 million raised by issuing a five-year loan with 8% coupon. These single digits are great. I mean, it used to be like 25% or something silly back in 2015, 2016, 40%. Um, I saw 40%. It was just outrageous. There's no way you could, you could do that. So the cost of capital is seriously declining. You can see that it was like 13% in 2020 um, and down to 8.5% now. So that just goes to show that there's demand for that and they're willing to, to reduce that as more people are willing to offer, um, you know, these, these, uh, these deals, bringing that cost of capital way down. And that includes plant touching as well. You would think that the, the cost of capital would be a lot higher, um, but it's not. So but when we look at uh, M&A activity, I guess the deal valuation for Tilray and Afria, $2.4 billion. Um, when Tilray was looking at uh, Afria in April of 2021. So still there's a lot of M&As. Um, Truly even Harvest Health, Hexo, uh, TerraSend, Engage Growth. Yeah, just a lot of consolidation. I think you're going to see a lot more um, canopy growth and Wana Brands, 298 million for the option to buy it when U.S. federal legalization occurs. <laughs> that was pretty crazy. So the largest, most profitable U.S. listed cannabis operator to date, being uh, Harvest Health, was acquired by True Leave. Uh, kind of see what happens with that one. But in terms of percentage of M&A deals that are targeting at cultivation retail, those are kind of the, um, the two biggest things. We didn't see cultivation for a while. It was like MSOs were like the big thing, right? And now we're kind of seeing the seed to sale as maybe the MSOs were moving and they're like, oh, wait a second, we, we forgot the cultivation. We need to bring that with us. And so now they're trying to get that seed to sale in, in those states where vertical integration is an opportunity to kind of going back and buying these um, fairly inexpensively, unlike what we saw on the West Coast, some California companies were buying other companies for 800, 900 million, like Select, when they bought companies in Oregon for $800 million. Um, yeah, that's not going to work out at all, like not even close. When you look at how Wana Brands was bought for 298, and then you're going to buy some garden for 800 million? Uh-uh, nope. Somebody's gonna lose some money on that one for sure. So the M&As kind of concentrated into cultivation retail, looking at the priorities to try to get that first production distribution for a lot of these companies. Um, not so much in Washington. Nobody wants anything in Washington state because uh, there's a limited investment cap of 10%, only 10% of non-residents, and then we're not vertically integrated. So either you own the retail or you own everything else. So not, nothing in, in Washington uh, for obvious reasons.
when you look at the strategy, there's emerging markets, New York or, you know, New Jersey, it's going to be really expensive. And then, like I mentioned, Washington, Oregon, kind of these distressed markets where they've been around for a while and um, you can maybe get a cheaper license. Um, in the U.S., M&A transactions, 168 versus in Canada, just 67. And the U.S., uh, there's very little uh, international M&As. There's nine versus 67 in Canada. So... I think when people start looking at strategies on, do you invest in uh, a distressed asset? You know, if there's federal legalization, why wouldn't you go out and buy something cheap knowing that you can just use those operations and SOPs to sell, you know, across state lines when that's available rather than spending 25 million for one license in Arizona uh, or any other limited license. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So this is a nice little infographic about the number of M&A deals by location. Um, so the acquirer, 40% is Canada, 52% is United States acquiring. And then the, the targets, um, just one out of five is in Canada, but the majority is in the US. But there's some interesting um, acquisitions out there. People are going after Australia and Belgium, Colombia, Denmark, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Israel, Jamaica, Lesotho, wherever that is, Mexico, Uruguay, uh, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, Switzerland, and the UK, uh, 1% in Puerto Rico, which, you know, if you haven't listened to this podcast before, Puerto Rico is the only place in the world you can go as an American business and not be forced to pay federal taxes. So you have to make about 36% more uh, in California than someone does in Puerto Rico, because Puerto Rico doesn't have congressional representation. You can't have taxation without representation. So Puerto Rico pays no federal taxes. So if you're selling CBD in California, you're an idiot. Seriously, you should be in Puerto Rico. There's no excuse. I've said this plenty of times. Absolute morons. If I'm sorry, I know I'm being like, uh, maybe too personal or whatever. But I just think like, if, if you know that Puerto Rico's there, and you're still in California, you're out of business, you just don't know it yet. So the foot race to gain newly legalized markets, uh, state markets, California, 20% of total uh, number of U.S. M&A transactions in 2021, one-fifth are in California alone. Makes sense. And then Colorado, another vertically integrated state. Pennsylvania, around 11%, uh, which is really interesting because I think of Pennsylvania as kind of being a small little ruler area. But, I mean, they have Pittsburgh and so many other, like, substantial areas. But for some reason... Um, just doesn't come across as a state that would uh, demand a lot of, of consumption for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. Um, Arizona, 49% is a lot of targets down there. A lot of people love that limited license in Arizona, and that's why people are paying $25 million for a single license. Pretty crazy. Florida too, but I just don't, I don't know. I just don't see Florida as um, keeping keeping investor capital uh, when you realize how expensive it is. And then there's federal legalization. Anyone who invests in Florida, I think is going to lose big time with the exception of the retailers. Anybody trying to cultivate California is going to lose their ass. So private equity. So these are companies that are private in the U S we're seeing a lot of capital coming into the U S because the public markets are saturated. There's a lot of speculation. Um, and so people are kind of really wanting to come back down into the private equity. And so there's been a lot of money being thrown around. Um, total capital raised by Courier Plus or Dutchie, 603 million. So 
Um, Gene Technologies got 227 million in private equity. And so a lot of, a lot of money being thrown around. There's a lot of public companies too, though. Um, and I'm just not sure how many of them are actually worth investing in though. So you got to really do your due diligence and see, um, yeah, who, who's worth investing in. So when you look at, uh, by industries, uh, big pharma is just worth so much more, um, coming in and, and buying up, gobbling in all these companies, uh, jazz pharmaceuticals bought GW pharma and then Pfizer bought, uh, air wellness, um, you know, like I mentioned, Constellation Brands, a beverage company, went up and, and purchased uh, 4.2 billion worth of canopy growth. So there's a lot of people coming in with publicly traded money to acquire uh, a portion or, or um, in cases, all of these cannabis companies. When you look at the market share change, ancillary companies have increased 319% from the beginning of the year. Average change in market value of companies, um, hemp and uh, CBD have gone up 55%, ag tech 45%, biotech uh, 30%. Um, cultivation retail, they already had their day, right? So going up 22% is still significant. When you look at that on a chart for like year to date, you can see public equity prices of listed companies in the New York and the new frontier data cannabis universe, this, this number of stocks that new frontier tracks, it's down negative 6% year to date. You look at the S&P, it's up 30%. So cannabis ETFs um, down 16%, just getting absolutely hammered. Uh, we run an artificial intelligence with machine learning uh, with predictive analytics that tracks cannabis stocks. We're up 115%. Um, we, we buy and sell. Like I said, the AI ML is, is great for looking at that. So these cannabis ETFs are always trash. Last year, we were up 94%. We did better than uh, Podex, um, I can't even remember by how much. It was like 147% better than Podex and um, the ETFMG Alternative Harvest Index uh, annihilated them. So they have always been really, really bad. Um, we padded our cannabis stocks with some ESG, the Environmental Social Governance and SRI, that's Social Responsibility Investing, because cannabis stocks alone don't do very well. As you can see from this graph, you know, like the, that Fibonacci retracement of 50% was like legit right after the election. Boom, everything spiked and then subsequently crashed. But some stocks did really well, like uh, Captor, uh, Capital Corp up 426%, um, Urban Grow 122, Power Reit 87. Um, you know, that's not too bad. So when you look at ag tech, negative 1.9 ancillary products 67 big pharma negative 3.6 some of the cultivation retail companies have done fairly well organogram up 72 percent somehow tilray's still up there um i would imagine them kind of plummeting just like planet 13 at negative 14 percent hexco negative 50 can't be growth negative 43 wow ancillary companies doing all right lifelock technologies up 126 percent compared to green lane holdings down negative 40 one of the biggest catalysts for change and investment is going to be banking. So it's not, it'll be just as big as legalization. Once banking comes in, then you know everyone's going to flood the markets and that's going to be the first sign. So um, I think what we're starting to see is um, more movement towards trying to remove um, cannabis from the controlled substances list. So you're going to see bills like the Cannabis Administrative Opportunities Act to kind of remove 
that bill. Obviously, that has to be removed um, before legalization. You're going to see states reform act as an opportunity to for the feds to kind of let the states continue to do what they want. And um, it'll be something more like the Safe Banking Act that really kind of creates that change. Uh, but before the Safe Banking Act happens, they're going to have to do something with the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment Expungement Act. So a lot of members of, of Congress uh, want to see criminalization removed. So anybody who has been in jail to have that removed from the list of, of uh, Schedule 1 and have anyone that's um, been arrested or charged or convicted to have all of that expunged from their records. And then finally, and then you'll see the Safe Banking Act where we will be allowed to bank. So a couple of steps in the process, probably not going to happen for a couple more years, maybe 2024. Uh, we'll, we'll see this roll out. Um, along with some central bank digital coins, uh, CBDC, central bank digital currency will have to happen because of all of the quantitative easing, all of the printing of money. And this is uh, one way of generating more revenue. Uh, and I think through all of the commotion and craziness that happens with that economic collapse in 2024 and the confusion around central bank digital coins and the legalization of cannabis for revenue, uh, it's just going to be a whirlwind of stuff. Uh, we're just going to come back and find out. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got.